Let us begin with a prayer. Let's pray with me, please. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be with us this morning as we discuss who we are in your name. And we know that you have kept your promise and are here with us. I ask you to be with me as I teach, for my knowledge is limited and my sins are many. We know you are a redeemer. Please redeem our time. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into our topic this morning, identity in Christ, I want to share a little bit about what we're doing with this class as a whole. As the world outside our doors seems to tear itself apart over issues of identity, sexuality, and justice, I have for a long time contented myself to combat the worldly misconceptions about those things by the simple proclamation of the true gospel, week in and week out, trusting the Holy Spirit to build up the body of Christ in faith, to be able to resist the lies that the world tells about who we are and what we should be doing both with our physical bodies and in society. And I still think that's true. The best way to prepare a Christian, to prepare you for the challenges that you will face in the world is to bolster your faith, to build up your faith. And the best way to bolster your faith is to remind you again and again and again and again of what Jesus has already done and accomplished for you by his death and resurrection. That's what our Sunday services are like and will remain like. They're gas stations for Christians whose tanks are getting close to empty. We are, after all, proclaiming Christ's finished work to a worn-out world. That said, the shouting out there about identity, sexuality, and justice, among other things, and the claim that the Bible's view of these things is not only backward and wrong, but should probably be illegal, is only getting louder. Books like Rod Dreher's Live Not By Lies, Douglas Murray's The Madness of Crowds, Vadi Bauckham's Fault Lines, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's Cynical Theories, all of which I've read in the last year, have gotten me thinking about the need for a more active catechesis for the members of Grace Church on these so-called issues of the day and how a Christian with a solidly biblical worldview should perceive them. Now, I will admit to um, some... Not hesitance exactly, but some caution in doing this. I'm aware of my own limitations in teaching on these topics, but it seems to me that the world, both the political world and the religious world, is not going to stop shouting about these things. And one of the reasons that people in church can be wooed and attracted to non-biblical ideas about these issues is that pastors aware of their own shortcomings, decide not to say anything. Now, it's an intimidating thing to stand up here in front of you to speak about something about which I fear my knowledge is limited. But it is my calling to help you to prepare as best I can. And I'm convinced that the truth, no matter how imperfectly whispered by me, can and will drown out the world's lying shouts. In his book, Live Not By Lies, Roger Ayer suggests that more and more churches and families are going to have to be what he calls resistance cells. 
against the world's false gospels about things like identity, sexuality, and justice. So that's what we're going to do today and for the next few weeks. We're going to strengthen our resistance cell. What I mean by that is just that we're going to be proclaiming the good news in the face of the world's bad news and trying to help equip you to proclaim it too within your families and in your own lives. Okay, before we get started on today's specific topic, a word or two of orientation is in order. First, I want you to know that I am consciously providing only a very broad view of these topics. We're going to spend about 45 minutes on each one when they could each easily fill a semester or more of teaching time on their own. I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. First, as I said before, I want our focus as a church to remain where it is. This is a church that's going to be defined by its preaching of the gospel, its ministry in word and sacrament to its people, its study of the scriptures, and its work to spread the good news about Jesus Christ to our city, country, and world. We will likely do more teaching on these and similar, similar topics in the upcoming months and years, but our focus on proclaiming Christ's finished work will be unwavering. Second, as I also said before, there are many more thorough thinkers, wiser theologians, and superior communicators who have done exemplary work in these areas. It seems silly to me to try to reshape the work they've already done and communicate it to you as though it were my own. Even as it is, I'm relying overwhelmingly on the work of others, even in these broad overview discussions. But to fill out what I say here, we have a large uh, syllabus and reading list that you can take advantage of. You can read for yourself some of the same resources that I've used in preparing these talks. I encourage you to get this stuff directly from the experts. So today we'll talk about identity. Next week we'll talk about sexuality. And on the third week we'll talk about justice. Now as far as questions go, I have blank cards, pens, and a box over there. They're going to be there each week next to the copies of the reading list if you didn't grab one already. So rather than taking questions at the end of each session when we'll only have a few minutes to do so before the nursery closes and we're all in a rush, I'd like to be able to give the questions some thought and honestly probably research that they will most likely deserve. So we'll be collecting questions throughout these three weeks and then have a question and answer session on the fourth week, spending all of our time with questions rather than just trying to squeeze a few in at the end of each session. You're also, of course, more than welcome to personally ask me any questions you might have about any of these issues or any others at any time. So let's talk about identity. And to begin, let's ground ourselves in the word. This is a reading from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in the 26th verse. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As we begin to discuss identity, I want to introduce you to two words, two vocabulary words that will help us as we do the important foundational work of distinguishing ways of knowing. For instance, to even start to answer a question like, who are you? You have to have some idea of how you would begin to know who you are. Where is that information? How do you access it? And the two words that will help us think about these ways of knowing are mimesis, M-I-M-E-S-I-S, mimesis, and poiesis, P-O-I-E-S-I-S, mimesis, And poiesis. And here are some quick and dirty definitions that I'm going to borrow from Carl Truman's recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. First, mimesis. Mimesis is the idea that the world has a given order and a given meaning. Thus, under a mimetic view, humans are seen as being required to discover the meaning of the world and conform themselves to it. So imagine approaching a piano without ever having seen one before. A mimetic procedure would be to try to figure out its given purpose and learn to use it as it was intended to be used. In this way, beautiful music could be produced. By contrast, poiesis sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by each individual. The same piano just becomes a jumble of wood, ivory, and springs, and its function and use can be different for any person who approaches it. Beautiful music would thereby almost never result. A mimetic view sees meaning, and therefore truth, as something that exists empirically, something that can and should be discovered Whereas a poetic view sees meaning, and therefore truth, as something that a particular individual grants as he or she desires. So mimesis is discovering a given truth. Poiesis is granting a truth of your own to something. So speaking theologically, the difference here is the difference between Genesis 1 and 2, which tell the story of God creating the world in a certain way, and in a certain order, and with certain rules that Adam and Eve, and by extension the rest of humanity, were commanded to live by. And Genesis 3, on the other hand, in which Adam and Eve reach up and try to become the ones who give the world its meaning, when they heed the serpent's lie, did God really say? That's the temptation, right? Is there really a truth that exists outside of you? Don't you think that you should be the one who decides what is true and what isn't. And ever since the serpent, humans have been tempted to reject a mimetic view of the world and have been drawn toward a poetic view, the desire to give creation whatever meaning we want, outside of anything that God may or may not have said about it. And this connection back to the created order in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the breaking of that order in Genesis 3, is why the issue of identity and where we find it is of first importance and not ultimately something about which Christians of good conscience can agree to disagree. This is not a second-tier issue like 
when you should be baptized or the orders of ministry in the church, things about which churches divide themselves but remain brothers and sisters in Christ. If we claim the ability to define the world as we know it and who we are, then we claim the right to define what our problems are and how we might be safe from them. If God is not the creator and identifier, then he cannot be the savior. Therefore, if God does not speak authoritatively into the world, there is no good news. Everything from creation to redemption is up to you. This is absolutely a first order issue. The gospel itself is at stake. And ultimately, the question of identity begs the question beneath all questions. Is there a God? Is there an almighty creator from outside the system who made everything? If we say no, then so be it. We can be whoever we say we are and live however we want to live and nothing means anything. But be careful, those waters are chaotic. In early ocean travel, ship captains never sailed out of sight of the shore. In those days, if all they could see around them was water, if there were no earthly stable reference points like rock formations, buildings, or lighthouses, sailors would have no idea where they were. Navigation was impossible. It wasn't until the stars were understood, and the North Star in particular, that ship captains could sail into the open ocean with confidence. Having an external reference point, something outside the world they knew, allowed them to stay on course. If there is no God who speaks into the world from outside, the navigation of human life is similarly impossible. It is anarchy and pandemonium. With no God who speaks, no one knows where to go. But if there is a God, and if he has spoken, well, then that changes everything. The job of the creature becomes a mimetic one to find out what God has said and to submit to it. The only other option, the one that humankind exclusively takes outside of Christ, is open rebellion. St. Paul says as much in the first chapter of Romans when he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. There's the connection back to the created order in Genesis. They have been create, clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When Paul says that in sin, people worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, he's saying in effect that they took a poetic view of the world, seeing it as a thing they could shape to their own desires rather than submitting themselves to the created order ordained by God. Paul also reveals the darkness at the logical end of this kind of thinking. You're on your own. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. So we see then just how first order at issue this is, how central to the good news identity actually is. Only one of these two views of the world is capable of even acknowledging that there is a God. Now, that's not to say that every single person who takes a mimetic view of the world is a Christian or even a theist, far from it. But it is to say that a Christian cannot take a poetic view of the world. The poetic view is at its heart godless. That is, in it, there is no God. Each person becomes their own little God, deciding for themselves the meaning of the things in the world they inhabit. Thus, the poetic view is not simply problematic, but actually heretical. Indeed, it's the very sin of Adam and Eve and must be opposed and countered in the world and to the extent that it is found in the church exposed and rooted out. But it is certainly true that as descendants of Adam and Eve, you and I all have this poetic tendency. And in recent years, it has become the societal norm. And once you know what to look for, it's actually pretty easy to see even in yourself as well as in society, simply by observing the changes in the normal way of thinking about things. In his book, Truman uses the concept of what he calls the expressive self to illustrate this idea. The expressive self is an outgrowth of the poetic view. When you are the definer of things, everything takes on its significance based on its relation to you. And especially, then, how you feel about it. To illustrate this idea, Truman, who is a professor at a Christian college, uses the example of job satisfaction. He suspects that his grandfather, were he to be asked if he was satisfied with his job, may not have even understood the question. And if he did understand it, he would have answered in terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet. Truman's own instinct, however, just two generations later, is to talk about the pleasure that teaching gives him, about the sense of personal fulfillment he feels when a student learns a new idea, and so on. So for previous generations, satisfaction was empirical, outwardly directed, and unrelated to a person's psychological state. Today, The issue of feeling is central. Again, this is a poetic view cropping up subconsciously in the mind and heart of a firmly biblically orthodox scholar. He sees it in himself. It has meaning. He recognizes that his first instinct is to look within himself to understand the world. 
It has meaning primarily in relation to him. And that's evidence of a problem, a shift from a mimetic view to a poetic one. Now, I should be clear here. It's too simple and way too late to just say, thou shalt not have a poetic view. Since the fall, that is our natural state. Like Adam and Eve, we are prone to attempt to wrest control for definition and most especially self-definition away from God and keep it for ourselves. But we need to recognize that tendency, call it the sin that it is, confess it and remember the truth that God is the creator In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. You are not a creator. You are a creature. You do not define yourself. You are defined by the one who made you. I want to take a moment now to look at what the Bible, that is the word of God, says about your identity. And we'll find that it says two things. First, it talks about how you might have been defined once. And then it talks about how you are now defined as a Christian, how you are defined in and on account of Jesus Christ. Now, we might have been defined, the Bible suggests, by our successes, by our struggles, or by our socio-political location. Now, it says, we are defined simply as people who were once dead in trespasses and sins and who are now alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And I want to go through these identities as the Bible lays them out. First, and perhaps most obviously, we are tempted to identify ourselves by our successes. You probably readily recognize this tendency in yourself. You're someone who went to that college, or who drives that car, or who married that girl, or who has achieved this list of accomplishments. You're someone that people look up to, someone They can trust. You're someone that other people want to be. That's who you are. This is a very common way for people to identify themselves. The Bible addresses this identity by accomplishment directly. In Philippians chapter 3, when St. Paul suggests that his accomplishments are better than anyone else's, and yet still not worth anything at all. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I have the most successes, he says. And yet Paul does not allow these successes to define him. Whatever gain I had, he continues, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's the key phrase, and be found in him. Paul founds his identity on Jesus. He is nothing other than a creature found in Christ. Conversely, we are sometimes, and this one can seem a little counterintuitive, we are sometimes tempted 
to identify ourselves by our struggles. You're from a place on which other people look down. You had to fight for every inch you've gained. No one ever gave you anything for free. In fact, they oppressed you. And maybe your ancestors too. That's who you are. This kind of identifying is sometimes seen in people deeply enmeshed in contemporary social justice movements. And Paul addresses this identity by suffering, too. Here he is writing in 2 Corinthians 12. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And of course, Paul isn't underestimating his weaknesses. He is a man who is beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned on multiple occasions and eventually killed. So let's say a word here about Paul's thorn. It's one of the great mysteries of the church. But here's the thing about Paul's thorn. He mentions it here. And then never talks about it again. And he must have pretty much never talked about it to anyone because there's not even really any great church tradition about what this thorn may have been. No one knows what it was that Paul begged God to relieve him of because Paul apparently never talked about it. He refused to be defined by it. He would not allow his greatest suffering to be his identity. As he says in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Paul founds his identity on Jesus. He is nothing other than a man who cannot be separated from the love of Christ. So Paul refuses to be defined by his greatest successes and he refuses to be defined by his greatest struggle. What about his socio-political location? This is the most common identifier that you'll hear about on the news. For instance, when a crime is committed nowadays, the first thing everyone wants to know are the so-called identity markers of the people involved. Not their names. They want to know their gender, their race, their sexuality. The world has a lot of identities on offer. We have gender identities. Was it a man or a woman? We have racial identities. Was the person black or white, Hispanic? We have sexual identities, gay or straight or trans. The term intersectionality, a term coined by legal scholar and activist Kimberly Crenshaw in the early 1990s, has gained prominence. The idea that you are the sum of your social and political identities. You are the place at which they all intersect. You might be a short Asian woman or a tall black man. But there are more identities than that, aren't there? 
height, race, and gender are only three. We must include sex and class and religion and disability and physical appearance and on and on. You, in this schema, in this system, become totally defined by these intersections. Now, St. Paul addresses his own socio-political location a little bit, as we read in Philippians 3, when he talked about how perfectly Jewish he is, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But he rejects all that in favor of being identified with Christ. He rejects our intersectional approach to self-definition too. Man or woman, white or black, gay or straight, rich or poor, etc. on into infinity. Listen to him in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The good news of Jesus Christ is a universal leveler. Your ethnic, socioeconomic, and gender identities, any particular identities are all covered over, made invisible by the covering and saving blood of Christ. Paul again founds his identity on nothing other than Jesus. He is one with every other believer no matter who they are, in Christ Jesus. The Bible really only allows for one single identity marker. And that's the most profound one you can imagine. God made flesh in Jesus Christ. What God's word elucidates for us is this. The world is wrong. There are really only two identities on offer. Dead in trespasses and sins or alive in Christ. That's it. Dead or alive. We are, as St. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, dead due to sin. That's bad news, but it's the only diagnosis profound enough to be true. Not lame, not sick, not successful or struggling, not black or white, not gay or straight, dead. When Paul describes the human condition in Romans, being unable to do the things you want to do and compelled to do the things you hate, he doesn't describe it as paralysis or sickness. He calls it death. That's the diagnosis for which Jesus' own death and resurrection is the appropriate prescription. We are dead as a doornail in sin and given new and joyful life on account of Christ. That's the transition that faith in Jesus describes. Death to new life. And newly alive in Christ is the only identity that matters. So as we get ready to wrap up here, let's take a practical real-life example of this to see how this thinking works itself out in the world. Now, the ultimate example of taking a poietic view of the world is what is called autopoiesis. That is, not only presuming to give meaning to the world around you, like the piano from my illustration earlier, but to also be the one who gives meaning to yourself, autopoiesis, to define yourself. 
Now, all sinners attempt to do this, you and me included. But perhaps the most obvious and in-your-face example is that of the so-called transgender person. Peter Jones, a professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in California, has written an article called Androgyny, the Pagan Sexual Ideal. And in this article, he suggests that the breakdown of the binary between men and women, i.e. the transgender movement, is an obvious and logical outworking of the breaking down of the first binary, that of the distinction between humankind and God. (coughs) We're right back to the garden, aren't we? Humankind trying to be gods. This is what poiesis does. And it is the autopoiesis of transgenderism that is a vivid illustration of it. Putting oneself on the throne in the place of God and wresting the creative enterprise away from him and taking it on for oneself. In 2015, Former Olympic gold medalist and television personality Bruce Jenner announced to the world that he was actually a trans woman. So let's take a moment to track how the story of someone like Bruce Jenner can illustrate the broken worldview against against which we must preach the bad news into which we must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now for someone like Jenner, the underlying assumption of life is that objective truths cannot exist. He takes a poietic view of the world, not a mimetic one. Biology, even, is not determinative of truth. Rather, as Truman suggests, Jenner is an expressive self. The feelings he has are determinative. He felt unhappy and uncomfortable as a man, and saw the world and himself poetically as raw material that could be molded to suit his feelings. He felt like a woman, and so engaged in the surgeries and hormonal treatments necessary to change his world and himself into a form that suited his feelings. The proof that Jenner's feelings were the ultimate law at play here is in the pudding. In his coming out Vanity Fair photo shoot, Jenner is seen with a long white dress, flowing hair, and lipstick. Now, ironically, Caitlyn Jenner is exactly what a man might feel the ideal woman looks like. Notice another irony. Though there is no room for God in Bruce Jenner's decision to self-create, Jenner is actually seeking something that only God can give. Jenner is struggling desperately for redemption. But since he has assumed the role of the creator, he must fulfill the role of the savior too. This is terribly bad news. There is no amount of hormone therapy or number of reconstructive surgeries that can save the sin-sick soul. Only Jesus can save. And Jesus, well, Jesus is the word of God who was with God when God created Nothing was made, says John, in the prologue to his gospel, that was not made through him. The good news that we do not have to create ourselves, but that we are who God calls us in Christ, is rejected by those who seek to define themselves, either explicitly and physically like Bruce Jenner, or implicitly like anyone, even Christians, who would define themselves in similar ways by their successes or by their struggles or by their genders, races, or any other thing. Any identity 
outside of Christ is not a Christian one and therefore must be confessed, repented of, and redeemed. Everything outside of Christ must be left on the cross. The good news is that on account of Christ's finished work there, it actually is left at the cross. Every identity in terms of success, every identity in terms of struggle, every identity in terms of socio-political location is gone. As Paul says so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In light of this good news, we can set down our aspirations to self-creation and bask in the new life we've been given in and on account of Jesus Christ. Now, we fail at this basking, of course. We all fall back again and again into the desire to self-create. But what we can do is, as I said, confess regularly, repent wholeheartedly, and throw ourselves once again on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, who finally identifies us in this most simple way. He calls us his own. Let's pray. Dear God, remind us always that we are yours. Tear down all the other ways in which we might identify ourselves. Secure us in the knowledge that when you look at us, you see your perfectly righteous son. Help us to be compassionate with those who are struggling with the security of their identity. Give us good news to proclaim to them. Be with us. Remind us that we are yours. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.